Okay, so this is um, podcast 11. Podcast 11. Check it out. And uh, today um, I thought, well, what would follow on nicely from um, the uh, podcast I did a couple of weeks ago, Foundations 4, um, on a topic that seems to crop up a lot with drummers um seems to be something of a of a sort of a topic of discussion about um you know how to study how to learn how to get better what things to study what to practice all that kind of all those sort of questions so i've kind of talked a bit about in the previous podcasts about setting a new standard and then you know then knowing what to practice um idea of sort of how to practice is something that maybe going to discuss in a bit more detail um today and then just this thing about rudiment rudimental kind of study the the the, the, the rudiments the drumming rudiments and how they link to um to different facets of, of being able to play uh, drum fills or improvise or play solos. Um, so I'm not going to get into like anything more complicated than sort of fundamental rudiments. There's all this kind of hybrid rudiment stuff, which I'm, I'm not going to talk about that at all today. Um, but I do kind of, um, I do think it's a good idea to check some of that stuff out. It's really interesting. But I don't think it's good to jump to that stuff. I think... Um, that might be a little bit confusing because sometimes we go back to rudiments and and I, and I do occasionally go back and remember and sort of reminisce a bit when I'm practicing with rudiments um, and kind of realise that actually, you know, there's much to do. There's much to practice. So, yeah, that's sort of today's topic is really about sort of practicing kind of properly as in as in uh, the sort of focus of practice but they're talking specifically about rudiments really and the two things kind of link together because it, it's that the nature of of, um, of how you approach rudiments and that kind of that way of practicing kind of can link into all sorts of other things that you're practicing um, and i don't want to be you know, repeating myself from from stuff I've talked about in previous podcasts, but there's inevitably a little bit of kind of um, blurring of the edges here because the sort of topics are very are, are all interconnected. They should be interconnected. So hopefully, they use this sort of a picture. You can get a picture here of kind of how these things are connecting together. Um, so yeah, just um, really a bit of news first of all. So you know, thanks for coming back if you have. Really appreciate it. Um, this is episode eleven, as I've just mentioned, um, and um, it's been a funny week. It's been a bit of a weather week, so to speak. You know, we have this uh, this storm. Uh, well, it's two storms going on actually. There's one going on now. Uh, it's just started really raining very heavily above me. I've got. That's, put the fan heater on in here and leave it on because it's quite cold um hopefully you can't hear it on the recording um but uh, i might turn it off in a while because it's a bit annoying uh, i'm sort of hoping it's not coming across on the microphone it's quite a long way away so but um I mean, it's saturday today 
So um, it's been a, yeah, like I say, it's been quite a strange week, quite tiring week. Um, not too busy on the playing front, uh, busy at work. Um, and yeah, somebody asked me about doing a, um, a guest appearance on the on the old podcast and I did mention a while ago I think I may have mentioned it in some of the early podcasts about doing um, like a kind of interview based thing with um, with some musician friends of mine um, and it is something I'd like to do it's like a bit of a nightmare to organise that's the only thing uh, I'd prefer because I'd prefer to do it in person you know but there is always you know the option to do it to do it kind of remotely and sort of stick it all together you know um and mix it down locally so to speak uh but i would like to sort of try and do it you know just in the same room or it's more i think it's more interesting it's more it's more of a vibe and it's just really um an opportunity to um to hear stories really you know people talk about people's experiences and kind of what they've how they've got to where they are what they're doing project wise who they're working with all those kind of things um it might won't necessarily link to anything about me but it's just people i you know know and have worked with or still are working with and uh, are friends of mine and uh, I, I just think are interesting people um and yeah, so, but there's, there's definitely, um, there's one that's going to be coming up soon. We, we're, um, we just started chatting about doing it, so um, I'm not going to say who it is, but it'll be a really, really nice one. Uh, someone I've known a long time and really interesting person who's doing lots of really interesting projects. Um, and I know we'll, um, a lot of people will be really interested in hearing that what he's got to say um so that's kind of that really not much else to report it's all just been just a lot of teaching so at the end of um we have this thing called reading week this week which is what people think of as a half term um so for me what that means is I won't be teaching this week but I'll be doing other things uh, I've got some auditions more auditions um and yeah got a few got a couple of gigs and bits and bobs on got a gig i haven't done for a long time which could be interesting um gig i used to do from time to time depping for a regular drummer that um that does that gig luke flowers who's done that gig for a long 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 time and um it used to be sort of like a house. I think it used to be like a house trio, really. All Manchester players, but it's not in Manchester. It's it's, it's down um, down in Stoke, which is a bit of a drive down the motorway, down the old M6, if anybody knows England. If you don't, it's, um, it's a genuinely hideous motorway that's unpleasant at any time to drive on. It's just awful. Um so yeah going down there on thursday to do a gig just as part of a house trio so what, what the, the way that gig tends to work and this is quite common in the uk and it's probably probably similar in other countries is that 
there's a guest. There'll usually be a guest that'll be invited to a jazz society. Um, and then they will have, uh, from time to time, or maybe more regularly, a, um, a rhythm section which is um, from a sort of localish city. It tends to be because um, the, a lot of the players that are sort of at that level tend to, they just tend to gravitate towards living in cities, really, or living near cities, or people still think of you as living in a city. And uh, a lot of people still think that I live in a city and I don't anymore, but I do live near um, quite a few cities because I live near Liverpool, I live near Manchester, obviously. Um, I live not too far from Leeds where I work it's 50 miles but it's you know it's nothing in in sort of really in travelling terms but it's um, you know it's not local local um, and then um, you, know, you could say I probably live near maybe Sheffield as well but you know but yeah you get around a bit it's not um, they're not huge distances in the UK as I was talking about last week you know you you're generally dealing with extremely busy roads so you know you're normally uh, you, you're not you just slow down by the volume of traffic really and uh, sort of certain especially at certain times of day that are traveling you're normally there's sort of times of day everybody else is traveling so apart from at night and then all the motorways are shut so it's a nightmare uh, no it's not that bad but it can it can be a pain the m6 is terrible for that though you know you, you're going down you go down somewhere and you're driving back in the night you think oh, i can get on the m6 and just have a nice drive home it'll be quiet you know and it's closed so you end up driving some, some sort of godforsaken b road behind a truck or 12 trucks they're all ambling along at you know 35 mile an hour um and it takes two hours to get home instead of 45 minutes or something so that's kind of what that's the sort of common thing of the, the gigging musician um well yeah that's that that's this week later this week um and uh, yeah yeah so it's not it's not too bad not too bad got a nice gig this weekend as well tomorrow a bit of a drive up to the northeast um and that should be a good one not done um, that's a gig it's with a guy I've worked with for a long time on and off um, it's kind of a project you know it's his own music and stuff and um, yeah we haven't done a gig for a while so I'm looking forward to that and it's with some uh, Manchester musicians as well which is nice um, all people that I know and have played with for a long long time so it should be a nice day tomorrow early start but that's fine um, that's kind of it really but I'm sort of sat at my, um, I've got this little practice kit thing set up at the moment. I'm still, it's the news with the drum hut, drum shed. Is that the guy who, um, the guy who built it, uh, I've probably heard this in the previous podcast, I persuaded him to... Um, come and do some modifications for me and uh, there's two quite simple modifications one is to put an internal door in here with a lock on it is so that the kind of essentially there's a sort of secondary kind of um, layer of security just for where the drums live really and it's also to help soundproof a bit so it's going to be sort of double glazed and uh, mainly sort of rock wool and wood but some glass uh, double glazed 
And that's going to be an internal door. So the sort of dimensions of the drum shed are... The original structure was was nine feet long by um, seven... Nine by seven, yeah. And it's, it's decent height. It's like eight foot, eight or nine foot at the highest point. And we basically... Uh, we decided to have an extra... We basically put as much more on as we could, so we had another eight-foot built onto it, so they took the one of the side walls down and then they, they built this extra... And this is the side I'm in now. It's in like an extra part, which is, which is eight feet by seven. And again, it's got uh, it's got slightly lower roof, um, but uh, it's, it's good. And... Uh, each side I've added, so we've got some lights. It's got it's fully it's electrics in there, everything. You know, there's, there's electricity and plugs and everything. It's all it's all completely waterproof and it's proper locks on it and an alarm and everything. It's a proper thing. Um, but I added some big LED lights because um, the idea in here is is that I film in here. I, I I practice in here and I also you know film myself practicing and I watch. I watch all that stuff. It's um, mostly depressing, occasionally enjoyable, but it's all a learning process. Um, and I have this, I have this system. I, I I video everything. I either practice stuff to metronomes, or I practice stuff to to stuff that I write, music that I write. Um, so I'll just write something in a time signature, a certain style, a certain tempo. And uh, I'll record, you know, maybe between 10 and 30 um, takes of that thing, you know, uh, record all of it and watch um, watch pretty much all of it back. I, there's some things I'll just ignore because I'll know that it was genuinely nonsense, um, just a waste of time to watch it. And a lot of those things I actually delete, you know. Uh, and I had a recent, I went through a load of stuff recently, um, because I had hundreds of gigabytes of stuff. Because it, the video is just, it's enormous, isn't it? You know, it builds up and up and up. And I deleted a lot of stuff recently. It was um, it was quite traumatic because I do like to hoard things a bit. I had this kind of idea I'd keep everything, but I was watching some of it and it was genuinely nonsense. It was awful, you know, rubbish, just really, really not great. And, uh, and it's just a thing of, I just... I think I I went through a period, um, like a, like a year or so ago, and a bit before that, of of not really playing that well, you know, of feeling like I was just there was just something not working well, and it was a technical thing, genuinely, you know, that was what I sort of got to the bottom of. It was actually a technique thing. I was thinking it was something else. I was thinking it was more about uh, enthusiasm actually and kind of heart you know sometimes we if we don't have the enthusiasm or the kind of heart for something we play in a half-arsed or half-hearted kind of way you know um but i worked out that it's not it wasn't that it isn't that it was a thing with the right hand and this is a this is a kind of this is a bit of a journey thing for me it's been going on for quite a long time um and um, some people that I've been that I've been teaching over the last two, maybe three or four years, will they'll know a little bit about this because we've had lots of discussions about grip, you know, about right hand grip. Um, and so for some people that might 
just be, you know, match grip because they're matching the grip. I, I play both. I've been playing a lot more traditional again in the last three or four months. Really, in fact, it's funny because I've been practicing quite a lot uh, on pads, not been doing a great deal on the, on the kit at all because of this room situation. Um, I'll sort of... Uh, sort of finish that story in a second because uh, it's saw some news there in relation to kind of when stuff's going to be done but um, I've been practicing a lot of traditional grip you know and uh, and it's been really interesting focusing back on the right hand again because the left hand my traditional grip playing my, my left hand tends to be it gets really quickly back into focus it gets back on into the job of what it needs to do I've got quite a strong uh, thumb and, and grip in the left hand with traditional grip. Um, I don't have any real issues with the strength side of things in the left hand. Uh, my thumb works very well and my forefinger works really well. Um, so that kind of tends to just, once I get back into, the, into sort of practicing some stuff again, uh, some technical stuff or rudimental stuff, it tends to really come together very quickly. But the right hand, I've been going through a thing where I've not been able to decide how I want to play my right hand. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of journey of technique, really, um, which I'll talk more about in a minute because it'll come up. And I'm talking about this kind of rudimental thing and practicing. But, uh, but uh, yeah, the, just the news with the room is that is that basically the the glass arrived the other day, and the door is ready, and uh, so on the twenty seventh of February, twenty twenty, if anyone's listening to this uh, on an archive in ten years time or something, which is highly unlikely, but uh, be interesting to to, to listen back. Um, this is going to be the. Um, the, the guy's coming to do the work. So we've got three windows which are going to be treble, quadruple glazed. They're all double glazed at the moment. It's just another layer of glasses going in on all three windows. Um, and then there's this internal door. And it's the, the main thing that's going to bring the volume down is the, is the internal door because the main door is the original summer house door. And it's very, it's double glazed, but it's very thin. It It, it doesn't, it doesn't stop sound at all. You can hear cars passing as, you, as I'm sat working on the computer or whatever from the road, which is, you know, 100 or so yards away. Um, so what I'm really hoping is that the internal door will just take the overall um, noise level down um, to a much more acceptable level for people locally. You know, that's that's the kind of idea. I've got a little bit of redesigning to do in here. And the other thing I've got to do in here, which is an absolute nightmare, is I've got to take everything out of here. So it's all going to get dumped on the other side. So next week might be tricky to do this podcast. I'm not sure. I'm going to see how I get on. Um, I've got to, um, the end of next week. It's quite... Um, it's not... Actually, it's not too busy. It's the end of the week after. That's what I'm thinking. It's in there. I'm getting ahead of myself. End of next week's fine. It's the end of the week after the 27th because we're only on the it's the 15th today. So yeah. Um. So, but I've ended up with this little sort of practice setup, which is um, which is a snare drum. I bought this 23 pound snare drum off eBay, um, and I was glad it was 23 pound because the guy that sold it to me. It was, it's a piece of crap, basically. But it was bought to put a mesh head on it. 
So I can actually turn the snares on. The, the, the thing that's crap about it is the, is the catch. But there you go. So you can put snares on it, but then I just practice it with this mesh head. Don't bother with the snares, there's no point if you're just practicing things. And it also makes it slightly quieter. So, so I've got that, I've got a pair of hi-hats, which uh, are just acoustic, just normal, no, da no dampening on them. So they're considerably louder than, than the snare. I've got another practice pad, but it's got a book on it at the moment because I'm going to talk about some rudimental stuff, so I'm just leaving that on there. And then I've got this uh, other practice pad, which has also got another book on it, which is on a shelf, which I can play over to. And then this ride cymbal with a with a with a dampening thing on it, uh, just makes it easier to crash. You know, I do like to practice sort of crashing correctly. Um, so yeah, and then the cajon, which is on the floor, which has got a bass drum beater, uh, sorry, bass drum pedal with a beater on, obviously. Um, and it's quite a soft beater, but it's actually, it's quite loud. It's quite a funky sound, actually. So it's good because I can practice like feathering. So I can be practicing like time, like that, and feathering. It's really, really quiet. Probably can't hear that, can you? And then, if I want to practice. Any sort of rudimental or patterny things. All those sort of things. And it's perfect, and it's and I've got my stool, and uh, so I've been just working on this and doing just practicing really some coordinational stuff, but I've also been doing some technique things and looking again at rudiments. And what I wanted to talk about today is the sort of the topic mainly today is like uh, why would one look at rudiments? How do rudiments link to being inventive? What do what can I do with rudiments to make them interesting? I'm not going to tell you what you can do with every rudiment and make it interesting. By the way, it's a, it's a that's a job for yourself. I'll share a couple of little things that I've done with specific rudiments to make them interesting for me, um, and then just also just like think of talking about like the source rudimental sort the source of rudiments. You know where you're getting your rudiments from. Um, and where kind of where the rudiments came from for me. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to have a quick break. So I'm going to turn off the fan heater because it's really irritating. Welcome back. Well, I mean, welcome. People always say that, don't they, on podcasts? They, they have a break. Some people have these little adverts in the middle that last about 15 seconds, and then they say, welcome back, and it's it's kind of funny, isn't it, because you've not really been anywhere. I mean, you'll be just listening continually. I've just walked across the room and walked back again. You're saying, welcome back, you know, like as if it's some enormous event, you know. Anyway, which, of course, it isn't. So... So rudiments, 
So the story for me with Runerins, and I've, I've talked about this before, but just to recap, I was bought a book called Modern Rudimental Swing Solos for the Advanced Drummer by Charlie Wilcoxon, Chaz Wilcoxon. And I have that book in front of me now. In the front of that book, it goes through a, a series of rudiments, rudimental study. Um, you start with the open stroke roll, and it has various different ones. You know, you've got the flam, which it counts as a, as a, as a kind of roll, which I believe it is, because alternating flams are swung double stroke rolls. Work that one out for yourself. Um, then there's the three stroke rough, which they call, uh, which is also a drag, which is also a three stroke roll. It's funny. Um, it's called three stroke rough here. Then there's a four stroke rough, which is actually a hand to hand thing. But there are 16 versions of the full stroke rough. Again, work it out for yourself, but there are four, you know, four stickings. Some of you will know that already, but the ones that don't, the 16 variations, and don't rule out, which is right, 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 by the way, and left, 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 left. Okay, they're all valid. It's all the same sound. Well, actually, they all sound different, which is what's nice about it. And it kind of gets us into this topic today of like, okay, so the full stroke rough on paper is written right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, etc. You know, alternating, and uh, that's 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 what that is. Um, so that's alternating, by the way. So you might think, oh right, okay, that's that, but it's not actually because I'm not playing like the four stroke rough, when I play a hand to hand in inverted commas, four stroke rough, it, it links to the way in which I play the drums pretty much all the time. Because I'm a double stroke drummer. Now, I ask people all the time when I'm teaching them, I say, are you a double stroke or a single stroke player, you know? And uh, nine times out of 10, people can answer very quickly, I'm a double stroke player. I'm a single stroke player. Occasionally, people look bemused or confused or they have that kind of moment of like, oh, I don't know, actually. Uh, and they think about it and they start thinking about, you know, their rudimental language, their vocabulary, the, 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 the patterns that they play instinctively away from grooves that, um, you know, express those different points in the music when they're, you know, playing something like a drum fill or they're playing a solo or whatever, or they're playing some sort of um, unison part within within music, you know. And uh, and then they work it out. They go, oh, actually, yeah, I'm a single-stroke person. Yeah, 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 yeah I'm a single-stroke person. I never thought about that. I play everything like hand-to-hand, -hand, really. I'm definitely not. I'm a, I'm a double-stroke person. And the, and the full-stroke rough... When I play a hand-to-hand four-stroke rough, and I'm doing the kind of inverted, annoying inverted commas thing there, um, which you can't see, obviously, because you're listening. But uh, when I do this, and, and now I'm putting a rimshot accent into it, uh, now that's a right to a left one. That's right, left, right, left. Now I'm just alternating, messing around with them. But the fundamental approach for me is I play a double in both hands, which is displaced. So the, that's that's it with no accent, okay? 
So I'm just going, you can hear probably two different sounds there, I hope. The, that one's on the snare and the other one's on my leg, on my thigh. Um, and that's just, they're just doubles. I'm playing a double on the snare. That's three or four, five, six, whatever it is. Just two strokes, I'm controlling. And then on, the, on my leg, I'm doing double as well. If I put them both on the snare, now if I, if I put a bit of weight in with the thumb, now I'm not playing hand to hand. That's, if I'm actually playing it hand to hand, it sounds like this. I'm now, now I'm alternating, but that's just the right, left, right, left one, okay? But if I'm doing the, the drop one where I'm just displacing two double stroke rolls, sounds like that, okay? Okay, so that's just two ways of playing it. So, um, but we've also got, like my favorite way, for instance, is to play right, right, left, left. Okay, that's the way I play, with, particularly with brushes. But I, I use that um, I use that idea a lot. I also use it when I'm playing swing, um, when I'm playing things in like swing time. If I'm playing like little fills between the snare, I might use that left, left, right, right, left, left, and then a crash. That sort of thing. So they're all, all these things are sort of linking together to me because they're all linked to double strokes. So what I'm always trying to do when I'm, um, when I'm looking at rudiments and I'm trying to learn, um, you know, a new rudiment or remind myself of a rudiment I've not used for a while is I'm always trying to sort of assimilate the way in which I play. Now, what I see a lot when I'm um, watching drummers, um, you know, that I teach and also online and stuff is, is I see a lot of people just being very literal with rudiments. You know, they're sort of playing double strokes or whatever, you know, on a hi-hat or something. So they're sort of playing the thing, but I don't hear character. I don't hear them. I hear it. And that's what I'm sort of talking about today, really. What I'd like... Just the thing I'm trying to get across is that, you know, rudimentary study is useful. It's about basically uh, crafting your technique and, and uh, introducing yourself to, you know, some ideas that are maybe uh, more challenging technically. Um, it's also about sort of thinking about different ways of sticking. Um, now, as I've kind of explained, like the four-stroke rough thing that's on page one of Chaz Wilcox, which we were talking about, like it's supposed to be a hand-to-hand -hand thing. Now, I've already made it, for me, <laughs> not a hand-to-hand -hand thing. I was trying to find the, the quickest way. This is years and years ago, you know. I was trying to find the quickest way for it to not be a hand-to-hand -hand thing because I just don't play the drums like that. You know, I don't... That's not how I kind of feel things technically sorry about that I was just making an adjustment to the computer I don't, basically in the middle of uh, about two three minutes ago the computer just crashed the logic just closed the computer and it just re, re sort of loaded logic and there was nothing there 
luckily the audio file that I'd recorded has managed to survive. So I've just re-imported it and um, we're back on track. So um, I'm trying to keep trying to keep the sort of uh, you know the train of thought when things like that happen when you haven't got when you just do it on your own as well. It's just a bit of a pain, isn't it? You're trying to get back in the zone again, but. I was also just making adjustments to the screen because it was sort of scrolling and it was um, just sort of annoying me a bit. So, yeah, changing the zoom, the zoom of the screen. But getting back to the sort of rudiment thing. So I was all, always trying to kind of how do I make how do I make it a double? How do I make it linked to the way in which I play the instrument? And then one of the other things that I like to do with rudiments and with double strokes particularly. And this is a good one to practice anyway when you're getting into the playing doubles and trying to strengthen your doubles is to uh, is to do this this secondary accent thing on the double. So right, right, left, left. Okay. And uh, there's two stickings. One is just doubles, right, right, left, left. And then you end with a soft stroke which is actually harder than you think, especially when you're playing it quickly. So you've got right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, tap stroke. Okay. And then the other one is the one that people, um, lots of drummers kind of get addicted to when they get into it and they sort of play it all the time. And that's the displaced double, the right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. You know, it's that one. It's the one where people, I hear lots of people play that thing. It's nice to end, it's nice to round it off with a bass drum, actually. So you don't play the final right, right with an accent. You play a bass drum instead. You know, there's that one. But the main thing you're aiming for with, with this rudiment is this accent. Right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. Or right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. And uh, and there's two ways of doing it in the hand. And it's a technique thing. One is a tap, it's like a molar kind of thing where you when you pick up to do the accent stroke, you tap the drum. So you get that sound, two extreme sounds, tap strike. And you get a lot of power if you utilize weight and uh, muscle, which you don't actually need to use, you can can just do that on the especially on a hi-hat you know a lot of people do that sort of triplet kind of groove they use that tip shank a lot of people call it but it's a kind of molar motion because the, the actual thing you're playing is the, is these is these crotchet strokes or quarter notes or whatever and if you sort of allow the stick to drop just before you strike with the weight, you get this quiet stroke. That's one way of doing those displaced doubles. The other way, like that, their doubles with the, with the accent on the second, is to use this thing where I call like collecting the stick, which uh, John Riley talks about is when you play up-tempo ride cymbal. When you're getting this... You're trying to get an, uh, uh, as much sound as you can on the third stroke. 
and it's with you're collecting the stick with the, with the fingers and um, you can do that you can do that as well with the um, with this displaced exercise and again you're using in the left hand um, it's funny, I always find it very easy to demonstrate to students in the left hand, but um, it never translates very well because it's traditional grip. But it's very, it's a very open hand thing, so it's very easy to see what's going on. It's basically a drop, and then the forefinger or the thumb. I use either the thumb or the forefinger. Sometimes I practice this exercise, which is actually alternating ones, the accents with the thumb, that's thumb, then that's forefinger. So I I alternate them to that to that to that to that or to get to get to get to get to get to get to get. So you get in the accent again on the second. That's left 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 all left lefts, and then you put the right hand in between. Anyway, that's done with. That's not done with this kind of this this molar motion. This kind of tap strike drop, and then and then use the muscle. To, to strike or just close closing the hand so the way people think about it this is done with letting the stick drop and it wants to rebound and collecting it with the fingers okay you, with match grip you, you know you're collecting it with the forefinger middle finger and the little sorry middle finger um, ring finger and the and the and the pinky the um, the little finger Make sure you don't forget about the little finger, people, because there's a lot of leverage in the little finger. A lot of people forget about that. That leverage is very useful. It's the furthest point from the fulcrum, yeah? A lot of people think speed is about kind of um, the closest point to the fulcrum, which is true. The very small muscles in the hand, obviously, they're the smallest muscles, some of the smallest muscles in the body, um, especially like useful muscles, muscles that we use all the time. Muscles in the fingers are very small, muscles in the hand are, are slightly bigger, and then obviously the muscles in the wrist and the forearm are bigger and bigger. But it's just this idea that <clears throat> we forget that the little finger is small and it's fast. And uh, if you train it, it's got a lot of leverage because it's it's the furthest point away from the fulcrum. And so just getting that thing of, of using the little finger to, to sort of propel the stick or, or to just collect the stick at the end of the stroke. And that, that rule doesn't, doesn't apply in, in traditional grip because you are using the closest fingers of the fulcrum in that, or even the thumb, which is which is that that vibe and that is literally the fulcrum because the thumb is also the fulcrum so um, that's kind of useful for speed because it's very close to it but don't forget about the little finger it's a really useful thing i see a lot of people playing little fingers out uh, it's not a, not a bad thing sometimes but we forget the little finger can be really useful so kind of rudiments and rudimental source my source was the Chaz Wilcoxon this modern rudimental swing solos book and and the, and the main thing about the book is if anyone's studied the book and I recommend the book it's great is it's filled with rudimental solos you know um starting with rolling rhythm and there's the flam stomp rhythmania which is a quite famous one parody little johnny blah 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 and they're all great because they're all um they're all kind of akin to the jazz sound and that's why they appealed to me you know 
Um, but there are other options out there. There are other sources. The two big sources for a lot of people, and this is to do with some of this is to do with branding. I use Vic Firth sticks uh, because I like the Peter Erskine original, the whatever it's called, the SPE, I think it's called. Uh, I don't even know what it's called actually, but I've used it since it came out in. Um, don't even know when it came out, late 80s or something like that. Uh, and it's the only stick I've used, I mean, like, seriously, since then. Uh, I've had other sticks that I've occasionally played with, but and, and do I do practice with other sticks, practice with some big sticks and heavier sticks. But on gigs, I pretty much always turn to the, the Peter Erskine original, and I've used it for a long time. Um... And the Vic Firth brand is strong, and the Vic Firth they have a list of rudiments on their on their website, you know, um, and and so does the Percussive Art Society. Pass they have a free list, uh, and so the Vic Firth ones they're both they're both free. There's no sort of copyright infringement going on here. Um, these then and there are forty rudiments in these lists. Uh, there's one on there I don't agree is a rudiment. The the, the buzz roll, a, a roll that's created um, through random multi bounce. I think I think anything that's random isn't rudimental really. That's my that's my personal opinion. But we, I don't want to get into an argument about that. I've had many arguments about it before. Uh, if you're doing multi bounce roll with three, four, five strokes or whatever beyond two strokes, then that's perfectly reasonable because that is obviously a quantifiable uh, pattern that you can repeat and try and make sound the same. If you're playing You know, a buzz roll, just a buzz sound where... I mean, I practice this exercise where I'm just trying to get... maximum uh, sustain without using any any other fingers than the fulcrum. It's just an exercise. I don't, I don't play like that, but it's quite a nice exercise. Uh, but I wouldn't call that a rudiment because I have no idea every time I hit the drum how many strokes i'm playing all, all i have an idea about is the way i'm doing it the intent behind it but it's not something that somebody else could replicate you know whereas all the other rudiments have that quality about them we could get you get a thousand drummers in a room and say you know one like one of the newer rudiments that's not in the wilcox and the the swiss army triplet one of my favorite uh, rudiments um which is actually a double stroke roll one hand straight one hand swung but that's, you know, again, we're getting into back into the flam thing um, and the alternating flam and the double stroke roll and the relationship between all those rudiments. Um, but, but basically, we all would aim to fundamentally play the Swiss Army triplet the same, you know, we'd, we'd all try and... So that's the opposite way. We'd be trying to get that thing together fundamentally, and then we do our own thing with it. You know, a lot of and some rudiments you'll realise, like the the Swiss Army triplet. And if everyone's like maybe seen, there's a quite an old Dave Weckl video now. It's been around. I don't know how long it's been out actually, but he uses the um, like uh, 
like the Swiss Army triplet thing between a ride similar and a snare, you know. And that's that's quite a, you know, it's been quite a well-documented reorchestration of rudiment. And so that's one way in which we can we can think about rudimental study and then what am I going to do with the rudiment? So one one way is to reorchestrate, and that's quite obvious. I don't want to get into that too much today because it's a really obvious thing. Uh, and it's also, again, I think part of self-discovery in that is more interesting than, than somebody else telling you how to do that, you know. And I think that, I think studying rudiments and then someone simply saying to you, okay, I want you to go away and I want you to find five ways to orchestrate a five-stroke role in the triplet subdivision. That's an interesting exercise for you to go away and practice. Um, it's not something, it's not very interesting if I, as a teacher, sit down and tell you what, what, how to do that, what to do, you know, what the orchestration of it is and go away and practice that orchestration. The difference that's going on there with with self-discovery and being literally spoon-fed is that one process, yes, does teach you that thing and maybe sparks, you know, a light bulb of inspiration, but it might not. Whereas the other way is in, instantly sparking the uh, light bulb of inspiration. Yeah, it's a subtle difference. If you're just giving somebody written out variations of the five-stroke row reorchestrated around the drum kit for them to go and practice, the light bulb ain't going to come on immediately. You're not going to be getting them to, to be thinking in, this, in the right way, in my opinion, about how to use this rudimental voc vocabulary, this language to 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 make it their own but if you go away and say here's a five stroke roll in triplet subdivision like or dat just that simple so there's you know the kind of normal way of playing a five stroke roll in the straight up and down two four time or whatever and then there's the tripletized version okay so you learn that and, and that's something that it should be taught, and it should be taught correctly. The three ver and the three versions of that within triplets. So you got that, 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 So one, two, three, one, two, three, and then the middle one, the one on the third. So all those three things should just be fundamentally taught correctly, I believe. You know, and making sure that people the technique that they're using is solid and it's got a good. There's good sound there. The division's accurate. All those things are important. It's just about that that systematic way of, of learning something. And then you say, okay, go away and find five different ways you can orchestrate that around the drum kit. I'm not going to tell you what they are. I've, in fact, I'm probably never going to have a discussion with, with you about what they are because there's so many different ways you can do that thing. But you just go away and do it yourself. And the thing I always say to them is don't rule out the feet. So, you know, some rudimental things... People do get quickly into that thing of like, okay, a flam can be this, which is, that's the corn and, and the snare drum in the right hand. Okay, a flam, it's a, it's a flam sound. I'm thinking, I'm not thinking bass drum to snare drum. I'm thinking. So that's the same as. It's the same pattern, but I'm thinking Oh, it's the bass drum is creating the flam. Now, the sticking's actually bizarre because it's all kind of right-handed or righty. It's all righty because it's my right foot and my right hand. 
But we're, we're thinking about the four-way thing here. And rudiments can quickly make their way into a kind of four-way orchestrated thing, you know. And uh, I, I always like, like Vinny with Colliuta, he's, he's brilliant at that thing of, of, of playing things from the feet to the hands, like drags and flams and stuff, and the way in which he puts them into patterns, you know. It's uh, it's really really uh, interesting the way he does it, and and particularly with this, I always think that the you know the flam should have an inner subdivision of of the of the of the sort of you know the outer groove of what's going on, you know. So so yeah, anyway, so that's another. Or the other way is to create um, is to create accents inside rudimental patterns that make them sound slightly different. And one of the ones that I use a lot, which you know, I can this is one you can go away and practice for yourself. Um, go and work out. I've given you a clue talking about the doubles thing about how to do this technically. But the pattern is right, left, right, right, left, left, which is a parodiddle diddle, one of my favourites. And uh, again, it's another one of those very addictive shapes. It's one of those where you can get very, but once you get, and you get into accenting with it, it becomes, it's also nice to play it just nice and gentle with, with, with little accents. But what I like to do with it is I like to put a, an accent on the second left. So you get this right, left, right, right, left, left. That sound, okay? Uh, and I like, I like that because it creates an accent within this shape, which is not on the beat. It, it and if and then you know you can if you want to you can then put an accent on the right before the right left on the beginning of it but i like i like to just bring this out this accent um and it's something i don't really think about as well so practiced it so much it's kind of one of those things where so when i'm using like a normal paradiddle that sort of sound like so that's between the ride cymbal and the snare drum so that's that's hi-hat and snare and the accents on the second left now then now I'm putting an accent on the, that last right just on that but if I don't put the accent on the right so much you get a slightly funkier sound. And then, so you get that kind of sound going on. And you can sort of displace it. Now, the thing that's great about the paradiddle diddle, of course, is it's very close, it's very close cousin to the six-stroke roll, isn't it? So the six-stroke roll, dat, 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 dat. Well, if you tripletize it, you know, and then you've got this thing where you're like, oh, hold on a minute, if I change the sticking of that slightly, it's actually, um, if I'm starting it with the right, it becomes a left-leading paradiddle-diddle. And a lot of people find that hard to play, but yet they find it easy to play a, a tripletized six-stroke roll, you know, so. But yeah, putting accents into rudiments can be a really, really interesting uh, way to variate things as well. So, you know, that's another thing to think about. 
but it's and it's also just that just that thing of generally that source material thing. Where are you getting your source material from? And then the the, the third element of this. This is the most important, um, and uh, it's the one. It's the biggest gap I see in this. Because I see a lot of people playing rudiments very literally. I don't, I don't see a lot of character. Um, that's my experience. Um, because it's because they're hard, you know. I think people just they 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 just get to the point where they can play the rudiments. They're not thinking beyond what they can do with the rudiment. But he's listening to different players, you know. Listen to different players and listen to how they've adapted rudiments to. Um, for their own style, you know, their own, their kind of signature thing. Listen to different players and kind of go, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a signature thing that they play. Oh, that's a signature thing that they play, you know. And and it also, it kind of leads you to sort of work out players of the single-strokey kind of players more and some of the double-stroke players more, you know. And I think that because of the nature of rudiments, is I mean you know the definition of a paradiddle is is combinations of single and double strokes you know, and uh, I always feel like anything I play within singles is always propelling towards doubles. It's always in that direction. Um, and maybe you know more single stroke players will, will, be, will be kind of aiming with with doubles, maybe in the feet, and then to play kind of hand to hand patterns around the kit. I don't know. I see that a lot. You know, whereas kind of jazz players, if someone's playing um, like a six pattern, where where you're going right, left, right, left, right, left, uh, which is uh, two on a snare, two on a tom. I'm actually eating a book at the moment. Sorry about that. But um, but it's just a simple digger da digger da digger da digger da. A jazz player would would probably play it more like left, left, right, right, left, left. Or the other way around, you know. We'll probably do it that way around, you know, um, just because of the sound world of it as well. So, but yeah, listening to different players and identifying. Can you hear the rudiments that they're playing? Are, are they rudimental kind of basis in their playing, um, or is it close to something that you've been practicing? You know, it's really. I think it's uh, it's definitely a way to sort of get into people's heads. You'll see a lot of things on social media where people write these stickings out and then they play these fills, and it can be presented as as a complicated thing. And then when you when you just sit back and look at it, you go, oh, actually, that's just a that's just actually a paradiddle diddle starting with the left hand, and the pattern's just beginning in the middle of the pattern, not actually at the start of the pattern. But the fundamental sticking is you can already play it. What you might not be able to do is begin it in the middle of the pattern, and again, you've got to you know you've got to learn to do that. Um, but it's essentially the mechanics of it are the same, you know, and that's why things like that five-stroke roll exercise, where you where you where you do the tripletized five-stroke roll and you move the accent through each triplet, is good with the metronome because it gets you from playing those accents away from the beat. It builds strength away from the beat. Um, so that you feel like you've got good time on the syncopated on the syncopated parts of the subdivision or the beat, if you like, you know, the middle triplet quaver or the last triplet quaver. Or if you're practicing stuff in semi quavers, then the second 
and the last semi-quaver are really, really useful things to practice exercises where, where you feel like you're, you're, you're putting the emphasis on the second semi-quaver of a group of four or 16th note, you know. So, um, so yeah, anyway, that's kind of, um, I kind of ran out of time today, really, because I've got a bit of a, I've got to stop now. So it's probably a good thing, actually, but it's, um, it's not been too long an episode, this. Um, but... Yeah, I'll probably be continuing talking a bit more about this again uh, in the future. I'm probably going to talk about some books, and I'm going to talk about stick control, syncopation, uh, modern rudimental swing solos, a book called Four-Way Coordination. Um, these are all sort of technique books or, or pattern books. Um, but, I'll, yeah, that'll be at a later time. Um, just generally a thing I might do a few episodes on books actually because there's also sort of snare drum study books and different things there's also you know Saul Goodwin Timp, Timp Method book it's a great book for kit players you know because the Saul Goodwin book has some great crossover exercises in it and uh, although a lot of you if anyone knows me and, and, and uh, that I've taught that people know that I'm not a massive fan of crossing over I try and avoid it where possible by using some different approaches to patterns but you know it's good to learn to to cross over and I, I liked crossing over when I was a timpanist I used to like doing the sort of German technique and crossing to the same point on each timp and being quite methodical about that sort of thing it's quite geeky quite appealed to me so um, but yeah that's um, that's kind of today's episode so anyway thanks for listening and um, I'll be back uh, hopefully same time next week so yeah bye for now <laughs>